starting, my most, something I'm proud of that I accomplished. Once upon a time, there was a family. We want to take Bob on a snipe hunt. And then I fell in, and but I was able to get out. It's time for the apple seed, an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and we're excited to bring you some great stories today. You know, in a lot of the stories that we love, the characters are working to maintain or uncover a connection to something bigger than themselves. Think about The Lion King, in which the enormous spirit of Mufasa the lion comes in a cloud to Simba and reminds Simba that he's lost a connection to his heritage by, in essence, forgetting who he is, the son of a king. Think about Harry Potter, who slowly discovers not only his connection to the wizarding world, but also his place of prominence in that world. And who can forget this moment of longing for a mysterious connection to something wonderful? Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers, the dreamers, and me Kermit the Frog doesn't even understand whatever it is he wants to be connected to. He just longs for it. And that's what this episode of The Appleseed is about. It's about connections, using stories to discover and maintain the connections to heritage and home and family and more that can unlock meaning for you. We're going to explore how an important object can sometimes be the key to unlocking a connection to a beloved place. The object in this case is a guitar owned by Detroit storyteller Reverend Robert B. Jones. We're also going to meet a couple of New York friends who work to share ancient stories with young audiences today. Their act is kind of comical, but they know they're sharing some of the world's most enduring values in the stories they tell. When you're in an improv group or a band or in a play, you're really succeeding or failing together. That's the Bible players. And uh, we're going to talk with them a little later on in the hour. But let's start with Reverend Robert B. Jones, shall we? Reverend Jones travels the country sharing a deep love of blues music with audiences of all kinds. And audiences who hear him find themselves uplifted and moved by the music and by the stories behind it. There's something sacred, it turns out, in Robert's feelings about the blues. And before we get to that story about Robert's guitar, I want to introduce him to you by way of this little bit of conversation with Reverend Jones. When he visited the Appleseed studio to record some stories and songs for you, I asked him how blues guitar player Robert B. Jones became Reverend Robert B. Jones. And here's what he told us. My pastor was a great guy. He had pastored for 37 years and had been a great mentor to me and, and just a, a great influence and, and a, a friend. And no one expected that he was going to get a pancreatic cancer and, and it would take him so quickly. So here I was, you know, an associate minister, which meant I got to preach maybe twice a year, got to shake hands, say an occasional prayer, because uh, I was always a good boy. But... Um, but now we don't have a pastor, right? And we're wondering who could succeed this man. And we went into this period of upheaval. And uh, there was there was a, a young man who was uh, too young. He was about 17 and wasn't married. And there was a guy who was a little too old. They'd been married too many times. And there was a guy who was a workaholic. And then there was me. And everybody's objection to me was, but you know he plays blues. So it's like... Yeah, okay, so, um, and, you know, I was just, like, kind of going through one of those why me points in your life, and then the Spirit, like, spoke to my mind and said, why not you, right? Why not you? You've you've benefited from this man's teaching and preaching. Somebody's got to carry it on. The mistake I made was to think that God wanted me to give up this music, but I tried to. I tried to, 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 move away from the music. And one day I was at an airport and I had my guitar case with me. And a young man asked me, what's in the case? 
And we started talking. I had an old national resophonic guitar from the 30s. We started talking about the guitar, ended up talking about life, ended up talking about abandonment and truth and spirituality. And that's when I discovered God didn't want me to give up the guitar. God wanted me to use the guitar in a way that was different. And so when I come to um, festivals or when I come to coffee houses, I just try to be the authentic me. And I am, uh, I'm a person who's got kind of a crazy sense of humor, and that's in there. I'm a person who loves history, that's in there. And I'm a person who loves God, and that's in there. And so I, I think when you do what you do and people see, you don't have to be like this dry, stale piece of toast to love God. They say, hey, that's cool. <laughs> you know, maybe I can love God too and be who I am. So God knew all of that when he, when he made the mix. And, uh, and so it's, it's just a joy to be able to travel around and uh, share with audiences of all kinds um, the, some of the things that have been poured into me. Yeah. A little bit of an introduction to Robert B. Jones, talking a bit about how he became Reverend Robert B. Jones. And I'll tell you what I love about what Robert said and why I wanted to share it with you. It's that part of the story in which he realizes that it's not in spite of his love for the blues that he feels useful to God. It's because of it. I know in my life, and it may be the same for you, that I sometimes think that I might be more useful if I were less like me. That's an easy trap to fall into, I think, especially because it's easy for us to see all the things we don't like about ourselves, all the things we wish we could change. And while there are always things about myself that I'll try to work on and improve, I find myself just a little bit inspired and comforted when I hear Reverend Robert B. Jones say... God knew all of that when he, when he made the mix. There's probably an invitation there, and I make it to you now to sit down with some of the people who love you and talk together about some of the wonderful things in the mix that makes up you. You might be surprised at some of the terrific things people see in you, and they might be surprised at some of the terrific things you see in them. Anyway, we promised you a story about a guitar. I've always thought that important objects make great windows into great stories. You've probably got something on a bookshelf or a mantelpiece or a desk that holds a story worth telling. Robert B. Jones's guitar is just such an object. And it's kind of unusual. Its back and sides are made of narrow strips of wood laid close together rather than big solid pieces like most guitars you've seen. I bet he gets asked a lot why his guitar is that way. People probably wonder where he got a guitar like that. And Robert B. Jones has answers to those questions. And in those answers, you'll learn a lot about Robert, a lot about Robert's Detroit home, and a lot about the blues. He's in the Appleseed Performance Studio, along with our terrific studio audience. Let's go listen, shall we? Thank you, Sam. And thank you, folks, for coming out. You may have noticed something about my guitars. A little unusual. It's kind of got pinstripes. And uh, there's a reason for that. Um, one of the things I love about this music is that it really tells its history. It's not just, you know, it's not just... Uh, a style of music. It's, it's, the blues is not really a noun. It's not a thing. It's, it's sort of a verb. It's what happens when, when, when folks from a certain culture and a certain time frame took music and made it their own. It's like you, you could start off, it could start off European. We just make anything into the blues, right? So the blues wasn't always a guitar music. There were pioneers. There were people who changed American music. And you think about American music as kind of like this, well, I think of it as this experience of what happens when the European meets the African in the Deep South, right? That, that becomes American music. And there was a guy by the name of Blind Lemon Jefferson. Not Blind Lemon Pledge, not Blind Melon Chitlin, 
but Blind Lemon Jefferson, because I guess his mama, after 12 kids, just ran out of names, right? And he was born in Wortham, Texas, and he was born blind. Big, big old boy, grew into a big old man. He had two talents in life. One was wrestling. Apparently, if Blind Lemon could get his hands on you, you were hit. That was it, right? But his greater talent was to play, play these little bitty parlor guitars. And I don't know if you've seen old pictures of these guys playing these little tiny little guitars, but getting all this sound out of them. Well, Blind Lemon in the 1920s was one of the first pe- people who made music on the blues guitar. And where everybody else was strumming, on top of old Smokey, all covered with snow, Blind Lemon was picking. I was standing on East Carroll Street one day, Lord, I was standing on East Carroll Street one day, I was standing on East Carroll Street one day, one dime is all I had. things I love about Blind Lemon Jefferson, around 1910, uh, 1912, he was hanging around with a guy named Hudie Ledbetter. Now, some people know who Hudie Ledbetter was, but some people don't. Hudie Ledbetter was the king of the 12-string guitar players of the world, according to Hudie Ledbetter. And uh, he came up with these amazing songs that people are still singing today. You can ask kids, you know, do you know any Hudie Ledbetter? Like, no. But you ask them, it's like, have you ever heard a song like, me and my wife can pick a bill of cotton. Me and my wife can pick a bill of day. Me and my wife can pick a bill of cotton. Me and my wife can pick a bill of day. Oh, Lord, it pick a bill of cotton. Oh, Lord, it pick a bill of day. Oh, Lord, it pick a bill of cotton. Oh, Lord, it pick a bill of day. And then if you ask their grandparents, do you know Hudie Ledbetter? They go, no. But then you say, well, have you ever heard? Irene, good night. Irene, good night. Good night, Irene, good night. Irene, I kiss you in my dream. So all of that music is from like that same era, like the turn of the 20th century because a lot of things were happening in the turn of the century. Not not 2010, but 1910. 
Detroit was building up in 1910, and it was an amazing place. Folks were flocking to the city of Detroit to build automobiles because this man by the name of Henry Ford came up with this idea called the assembly line. And Henry Ford was an equal opportunity employer. He was also an equal opportunity exploiter. And he brought in folks from all over the world. And he had he had white folks and Irish folks and Polish folks and Italians and African-Americans. And he had thugs for every one of those flavors. So that if you drove anything other than a Ford car, the Italian thugs would come and beat up the Italian guy until he decided to get a Ford Model T. And the black guy would do the same thing. And so because of that, Detroit started to really rise. And they put up all of these amazing houses in the city of Detroit, built around 1910, 1912, 1913. And so being a student of history and a lover of Detroit, there's one house that caused me to really want to tell you the story about it. And uh, it was built in 1910 on a street called Trumbull. And in fact, this house is a lot closer to you than you possibly can imagine. This old house was built on Trumbull Street Back in 1910 When the whole world worked for Henry Ford He was the poor man's friend In Detroit money built it But it outlived the fame Of that city that put the world on wheels And gave Motown its name But when you come from Detroit You have to know, my friend that you cannot surrender and you cannot give in and even when you're broken and you're almost at the end know that if you save the pieces you will live again Milton Smith he lived in this old house for almost 60 years and it had his share of singing and it had a share of tears Through the Coolies and Hernandezes Time would take its toll 2012 they took her down 102 years old But when you come from Detroit You have to know, my friend That you cannot surrender, Lord And you dare not give in And even when you're broken And you're almost at the end Know that if you save the pieces, you will rise again. I'm just a Detroit storyteller, but I travel near and far. And a Detroit storyteller wants to play Detroit guitar. So I met a builder named Zimnicki, a man of awesome skills. Arch tops, flat tops, ukuleles, ain't nothing he can't build. He said, I got something I'd like to show you, and I think it's kind of sweet. See, I built this from this old house that used to stand on Trumbull Street. I used maple from the floorboards and walnut from the shelves. And this top is from a ceiling joist that I couldn't clean myself. Now I play a Detroit guitar made of hundred-year-old wood And I got to tell you, she sings mighty good Cause when you come from Detroit You have to know, my friend That you cannot surrender, Lord And you dare not give in And even when you're broken And you're almost at the end Know that if you save the pieces you will sing again Know that if you say the pieces You will sing again So, uh, thank you. So for the radio audience, this guitar is, is, looks like it's pinstriped. 
It has wide ribs of uh, maple, and those are floorboards separated by strips of dark wood, and that's uh, walnut from shelves. And the top is, is really kind of three-toned. It came from a Douglas first ceiling joist, and uh, inlaid in the 12th fret is the year 1910, and inlaid in the headstock is the image of the house. So no matter where I'm playing, if I'm playing this guitar, I'm always playing Detroit. Thank you. Reverend Robert B. Jones with that incredible song about how his guitar came to be, recorded for you live in the Appleseed studio on the very guitar that the song is about. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. After that performance we just heard, I look forward to a little studio talk back around the desk with friends. And that's up next. I'm Sam Payne. We just enjoyed a story in the Appleseed Performance Studio from Reverend Robert B. Jones, a story about an important guitar, a guitar that keeps him connected to his Detroit home. So wonderful to hear that story and good heavens to hear that music as well. It's time for a little Appleseed Studio talk back. We're here at the desk with our producer, Brian Tanner. Brian, it's great to have you with me. It's great to be here. And also with Lacey Ivey, one of our assistant producers. Lacey, good to have you with me. Good to be here. I'm thinking about objects that help us stay connected to stuff. And Brian Tanner, you've got an object right here on the desk. I was thinking about the things that I own that help me uh, think about the people that I love and the people that I'm connected to. And I thought about this bell that I have. And I'm holding it up here and ringing it a little. It is a brass bell, very ordinary looking, and it has a black wooden handle. Uh, But this was given to me by my grandmother. It's inscribed here, Martha A. Tanner, Educator, Nebo School District. Oh, wow. She taught first grade for decades and they gave her this bell and I when I when I see it and when I hold it I can think of her out on the schoolyard maybe ringing the bell to bring the kids back in and you know by the time I knew my grandmother really she'd already retired she already had the white hair and everything and so I think of her that way but this bell makes me think like no she was young once huh. and she was a teacher and uh, she influenced the lives of hundreds of children who pass through her classrooms. And Uh, so I I love this bell. It reminds me of my grandmother. Sure. What about you, Lacey? Tell us what you were thinking of as you listened to this story from Robert B. Jones. I actually thought of my own guitar. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I felt so connected to this story because he's from Detroit, which is Michigan. Wow. And I had lived in Michigan for a little while. I went and one person that I really got close to had this really really old guitar. Hmm. We went over one day. We were just having a wonderful dinner with her and her family, and she pulled it out, and then I asked her if I could play it a little bit because I I knew how to play. Hmm. After getting to know that family for a while, she actually sent it home with me. The guitar came home with you. The guitar came home with me. Wow. So I still have it. I, I was away from my family, but I got to know a whole new family out there. Oh, that's so cool. You know, for me... Food memories, you know, I'll eat something that reminds me of something that my mother used to make, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I'm absolutely back there. Mm-hmm. You know? It's actually a food story that I brought as today's uh, Radio Family Journal entry. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. I was a senior in high school, and I was taking a foods class. Now, I had only taken the class, really, as a way to fill a required credit, and I don't know how much I was looking forward to it, but 
Almost immediately, I was won over. We learned about cooking temperatures and about keeping food preparation surfaces clean and about how to properly wash a dish, about why you include certain ingredients in baked goods. I mean, some of it was science-y and some of it was like a health class and some of it was like living in the school cafeteria. And I remember watching a video in class about how to frost a cake. This was way, way before the great British baking anything, and I was mesmerized. I learned about buttercream frosting, and oh man, I, I better stop there because I got to finish this entry in the Radio Family Journal, and, well, my mouth is beginning to water. I found that making food was something I wanted to be good at, which is why I lost so much sleep over the final assignment. We were supposed to make an entire gourmet meal, all from scratch, for our families. We were to choose the menu items, prepare them, present them, photograph them, eat them, and then come back to class and talk about them. And we knew about the assignment from the beginning of class, and I fretted over it like it was the ACT test. And I didn't get any relief until my mom said, why don't you make one of your grandmother's Greek dishes? Now, my great-grandfather was an immigrant from Greece. As a kid, he had lied about his age to get a job on a ship, and he came to America and stayed. He fought for the United States in World War I. And my grandfather, though he had been born in Duluth and not in Thessaloniki, was every bit the Greek my great-grandfather was. And though my grandma's people were Scandinavian and not Greek at all, my grandfather's home was a Greek home, and my Scandinavian grandmother made the food my Greek grandfather loved. I didn't know any of this. In those days, I lived in an American middle-class town in an American middle-class way. I was pretty much like every other kid in my American middle-class school, learning the American middle-class stuff that all of them were learning, and I didn't think much about my heritage. And then came this meal. My grandmother lived 700 miles away, and calling on the phone in those days was expensive. Of course, there were no cell phones. So this project started with a letter asking my grandma if she'd help me make a meal. And then a letter back from her with ideas for menu items, lists of ingredients. And on the day I made the meal, I did call her. I held the phone under my chin, stretching the long phone cord over to the kitchen counter and to the stove and the oven, as my grandmother gave me tips about how to make the food of, well, the food of my family. And with making the food came stories, the stories of how my great-grandfather got here and about the branches of the family still in Thessaloniki at the foot of Mount Olympus. I learned about my family name, Pappas, a name shared with so many Greek immigrants, even though they're not related to each other because it was a general abbreviation from their real names, which often came from the priests of their congregations, Papadopoulos or Papa Stefano, or in the case of my family, Papa Vasiliou, all shortened to Pappas in America. And I heard those stories. My grandmother taught me about oregano and rosemary and lamb and olive oil and olives and cheese. And her daughter, my mom, taught me about honey and phyllo dough and chopped pistachios as she showed me how to make baklava, laying down layer after layer of paper-thin dough and nuts and honey and butter, and then in the end, cutting the finished baklava into diamond shapes. This was more than a meal. When I was done, I was filled with the stories of my family. I was connected to my heritage in a way that I never had been before. I saw things about the relationship between my grandparents that I had never seen before. I saw things about their relationship with my mother that I'd never thought about. And of course, the next time I looked in the mirror... I saw things I had never thought to look at before. I saw the shape of my nose. I saw the thickness and color of my hair and the line of my jaw. I saw all that as meaning something. And the food was great. The kitchen smelled like, well, it smelled like my grandma's house. 
I remember my mother leaning over the pans as they came from the oven, deeply breathing in the family smells. And then we called my brothers and my sister into the kitchen and my dad, and we sat at our little kitchen table and we ate. I don't think that meal changed anyone's life, not anyone else's, at least. It wasn't a miraculous example of proficiency in the kitchen. It wasn't the best lamb or baklava anyone at the table had ever had, but it changed me. Over the course of the day, I felt like a window had been opened between me and my Greek family. There was more to me, as it had turned out, than just me. I was part of a heritage, and that changed everything. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. Family storytelling helps us develop a sacred connection to the people we love and to those who have gone before us. It turns our hearts toward where we came from. And maybe the story of a meal made for a high school assignment, as simple as it is, reminds you of something over which you can connect. It's been really fun to talk with Lacey Ivy about a guitar that came home from a time when she lived in Michigan, a guitar that she still has. Lacey, thanks for sharing that story with us. Yeah, of course. And Brian, you brought that bell. <laughs> Just, uh, Ring it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Recess is over. That's right. There's a lot coming up on the Appleseed. Up next, we're going to take you to St. Louis, Missouri, where we ran into a couple of New York friends on a performing tour, Andrew Davies and Aaron Friedman are their names, and together they're the Bible players, sharing some of the world's ancient stories with today's audiences. And as they're doing it, they find themselves part of a conversation that includes ancestors, storytellers, and people of faith that go back thousands of years. And you're going to meet them. It's coming up. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed, an hour that uses the power of great stories to help you make sense of the world and communicate with the people who are important to you. After all, great stories can change the world. I think about the two friends to whom I want to introduce you next. These two friends work together to share some of the world's oldest stories with some of its newest people. And that makes them feel like they're part of a great conversation that began long before them and will continue long after. I got to see these guys perform for one of their terrific audiences on tour. And that's where we'll begin the story. We're at the Jewish Community Center in Crevecourt, Missouri, in the audience to hear The Bible Players, an improv and storytelling comedy duo specializing in presenting Torah stories to audiences of all ages. Now, the players are Andrew Davies and Aaron Friedman. And while they're based in New York, they tour all over the country. And they're in Crevecourt as guests of the St. Louis Storytelling Festival. And here, like in other places, they present an hour dedicated to stories that allow them to showcase certain values, courage or community or respect. And they teach audiences the Hebrew words for those values as well. And tonight, it's hesed, the Hebrew word for kindness. And they're sharing lively, funny, dramatic renditions of the story of Moses and Zipporah, Isaac and Rebecca, along with a generous sprinkling of jokes and costume pieces, and even a recurring bit called mitzvah moments, in which they present very brief lessons about precepts of good behavior, like commercial breaks between stories. And their audience of kids and their families is spellbound. And it's near the end of their performance now, and they have time for one more story. And here are Andrew Davies and Aaron Friedman to set it up. This comes just after they've asked the audience if anyone has ever been to Jerusalem. Some raise their hands. There's a special spot in Israel, a special spot you may have visited if you got to go there. There's a special wall. Sometimes people write notes about their hopes and prayers and dreams. 
and they put the notes in the wall because that used to be part of the Beit Hamidash, the temple in Jerusalem. And the rabbis tell this story about why the temple was built in that particular spot. They say it was because of the chesed and kindness of these two brothers. Now, these two brothers were farmers. One of these brothers lived by himself, and the other brother lived with his three kids and his wife. And with that, Andrew and Aaron get ready. One of them portrays a man snoring, and the other, for a moment, portrays the man's wife. And they're both wearing their Bible players' uniforms, brightly colored T-shirts, one red and one blue, and ball caps to match. The ball caps say, the Bible players on the front. You'll like hearing Andrew and Aaron here, but you'll also get to hear the delight of their audience right up close to the action. The story starts with the snoring man waking up from a bad dream. Oh my goodness, husband, you woke me up. I'm sorry. You know I'm trying to get some beauty sleep. Yeah. I think you need some more. That's what I'm saying. I cannot sleep, honey. I can't sleep. I keep worrying about my brother. Oh. He's all alone. Oh, well, it's nice that you're thinking about your brother. But why don't you stop thinking about it and start acting? Acting to be or not to be. That is the question. No, no. Um, more Jewish. Ah, to be or not to be. Oi, what a question. No, no. <laughs> Sorry, I'm saying acting like take action, you know? A man of words and not of deeds is like a garden full of weeds. With that, you're getting the flavor of a show by the Bible players. The husband in the story decides to secretly bring to his brother a sack of barley. But across the field, the second brother, played by the Bible player who a moment ago played the first brother's wife, is pondering on his own good fortune and on the plight of the first brother having to care for a family when the second brother has only to grow enough grain for himself. So just as the first brother is planning to secretly deliver a sack of grain to the second brother, the second brother is planning to secretly deliver a sack of grain to the first brother. Each unknown to the other, they set out, each to the other's house, set I hope I go, bring barley to my bro, that's all I'll sing. Copyright infringement. I ho, I ho, I ho, I'll just leave this sack by his door. The brothers return, each to his own house, to find a mysterious sack of barley on his porch. Baffled by the mystery, the next night they try again, each brother secretly delivering a sack of barley to the other's porch. This leads to a sequence where Andrew and Aaron, as the two brothers, run back and forth again and again, each trying harder and harder to leave a sack of barley on his brother's porch, only to find a mysterious sack of barley on his own porch when he gets home. And the audience gets more and more giddy. What the hey, Bob Zion? Wait, I brought this bag to my brother twice. I brought this bag to my brother twice already. Okay, I'm bringing it again now. Players take a bow and then lead a discussion with the kids and grown-ups in the audience about hesed, kindness. And they ask questions that help their audience discuss kindnesses that they've done to others and that others have done to them. And at the end of it all, the Bible players wrap up the show with their signature rap, their theme song. Because we're the Bible players, the Bible players. Who makes the Bible lots of fun? Whose Bible playing job is never done? 
The Bible spiders, the Bible spiders. Now God didn't like the Tower of Babel, so he confused them all with biblical scrabble. Goliath was a scary, hairy jock, but David took him down. That guy did right. Moses talked to a burning bush. If he sat on the plant, he'd have a burning tush. Because we're the Bible players, the Bible players. Who tells stories and is funny, too? Who makes the Bible feel brand new? The Bible players, the Bible players. Thank you so much, everyone. For After the show, in the hall, Andrew and Aaron are mobbed by fans at the merch table. Things clear out as soon as the ice cream truck arrived. It's a planned part of this performance. And I spend a few minutes chatting with Andrew and Aaron about their work. We're there in the lobby of the performance and still in company with some of their fans who chat with each other as I'm talking with the players. I ask them how the Bible players came together in the first place. Aaron and I are old friends. Uh, and we're somehow still friends. We love each Barely. other. Barely. Barely. We went to high school together in Philadelphia. We met doing uh, performing in the Music Man together in high school. And we clicked. And then after college, we both wound up living in New York City, where we were both teaching at you know, Jewish Sunday school and also pursuing improv comedy, stand-up comedy. And we decided, let's combine our love of comedy with our love of Judaism and Bible stories, and we created the Bible players. Yeah, and uh, part of the birth was also we were working at a summer camp together, and on rainy days, they didn't know what to do with all the kids, so they asked us, you know, what can you do with like 300 kids in a gymnasium? Like, we don't want to just keep showing them the same movies over and over again. So, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And so on those rainy days, we just started coming up with games and stories and scenes. And, you know, you get feedback from kids real fast. Kids do let you know really quickly if they are into it or not into it. They, do, they are not subtle. So they, we really learned what the kids loved, and we started writing stories, and we thought about the values we could teach through stories. In the audience, we saw today, we saw a lot of kids, we saw a lot of their parents, and grandparents, mm-hmm. and things like that. What's the difference between performing for, I guess, uh, you, you talk about having a background in improv, mm-hmm. you know, which is probably not largely a kid audience, no, right? No, no, it's true. Uh, what's the difference between performing in that environment and performing, you know, material that has a lot of the same or underpinnings, but for a, a kid audience? Good question. I'll say that Performing with kids, it's really a lot about in the energy. I mean, the energy that you give to them, it really they give back to you. And that's what's so much fun about performing for kids, is that you feed off of their energy. Their giggles, their smiles, their engagement really spurns you on. And I, we find that physical comedy is often great with kids. I think as a culture, we used to sort of appreciate physical comedy. The Marx Brothers used to be the heroes, and Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And somehow we've sort of gotten too cool for that, I guess, but we really find that it's the best. Like, kids love when you slip and fall down or carrying something too heavy and fall down, or we have a whole scene that's just me opening and closing my arms. That's kids' favorite thing in the world. So you can spend hours crafting a beautiful, meticulous, clever joke, and then we just do something with our arms, and that's an even bigger laugh. So what we really sometimes do is we say that we we write the morals and the clever jokes for the adults, and then we find the physical comedy that will bring in the younger kids. There's such a kind of arms-open, kind of welcoming stance that you guys have in terms of these, uh, again, the values that are inherent in, 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 in the work, the values that you're trying to bring to the kids. Uh, I imagine that some of that is kind of sowing seeds that are going to bear fruit where you can't see it, you know. Yeah. I mean, but but do, do you get to see any of that? I mean, certainly you're connecting with with your audience on a comic level. Mm-hmm. Certainly you're engaging your audience on an involvement level, and and you, you get to see all the enjoyment, you know. Right. Do you get to see some of the the blossoming of some of those the some of those values ideas? Do you see Do you see light bulbs coming on for kids? We do. Uh, when we started, we realized that the first rule of improv and also a famous Jewish prayer are the same. Where the, it's called the Shema, which in English means listen. And the first rule of improv is always listen. So we encourage the kids to listen to each other. And we've been doing it long enough where we've seen kids who were five and six years old, and now they're teenagers and terrifying. But they come up to us and they're like, I remember you came to my school and you taught this story and I... 
learn to listen. And, and they're doing improv in high school now, and it's really rewarding. Yeah. I, I think um, in my life when I was younger, I, there was a certain age where I got tired of competitive sports, and I found theater. And for me, the wonderful thing about the arts is that you're really just competing with yourself and you're trying to build something great together. And so when you're in an improv group or a band or in a play, you're really succeeding or failing together. You really have to lift each other up. You have to work together. And so we try and really embody that with our spirit and how we work together. And through improv games is really a way to sort of work that muscle of acting and supporting each other together. Um, So... What I really love to see with kids is that after a show, sometimes I will see kids playing our improv games together, and they're simple enough that you can play them completely on your own. You don't need adults to play them. And to play cooperatively and collaborate together, I just really feel like that's going to turn them into better humans as they go on. It's a practice to keep practicing. Do you get to do... Uh, we observed, you know, a, a show today with a largely Jewish audience, mm-hmm. right? Do you find yourself getting to perform for people outside of that community, uh, being kind of the window into, into, in, into ideas that are Jewish, mm-hmm. into ideas that are based in the Torah, right. that, you know, you, you find yourself performing for Christian audiences or Muslim audiences, or is that a... Do, do you find yourselves, I guess, in a way, being the way in for some people, you know, yeah. as they observe your work? Um, we, you know, for the most part, we're performing for largely Jewish audiences. But from the beginning, it was really important to us that everyone feel welcome at all of our programs and that we really feel that the values that we're teaching are really human values that everyone can connect with. Mm-hmm. You know, our real feeling is that if your faith and your religion and your community mm-hmm. helps you to treat other people better and to support the people around you and create a stronger community, then it's really beautiful, and we support that. And so in the way that we can help people to understand the Jewish values and some of the Jewish stories we grew up with, we actually really love that. Actually, last week, we were flying to Pittsburgh and sitting in the exit row and seated next to us in the exit row were two sisters, were two nuns. And we ended up talking with them the whole flight, and they were doing programs in Pittsburgh, and we were doing programs in Pittsburgh, and they were completely separate, but we just talked about all the things that we have in common and how much we all have to learn from each other's cultures. And I think we all we don't have enough time in our busy lives to learn everything about everyone, but whenever we can expose people to a new culture and learn about a new culture ourselves, it always enriches us. And they got all our Bible jokes, too. Yeah. They know their Bible. They did. <laughs> and speaking of Bible, that's why we called ourselves the Bible players. We didn't yeah. want to leave anyone out. Uh, if we called us the Torah players, someone might think, oh, I don't know a lot about the Torah or the Hebrew Bible. Mm. Or, yeah. So it's really about inclusion rather than exclusion. So our values are usually kindness, community, respect. Peace in our home. Peace in the home, spirit. Like it's all basically wonderful things for everyone. And I guess finally, I'm always interested in, you know, a a couple of guys like you get together and you say, hey, let's let's do, it's 2011, and you say, hey, let's do this thing. That'll be fun, right? And then... I mean, you've been doing it now for a number of years, and, and surely it has held, you know, some surprises for you. It's, it's become richer in some ways than you thought it would in 2011. You know, I mean, it, it, describe some of that process. How, how, has this sort of, how, how has this sort of grown bigger than your original idea, if it has? You know, I mean, what, what, what happy surprises have the Bible players had for you guys over the the years? I guess the first thing that jumps out to me is that it's just been such a delight to get to see so much more of America and meet so many more people. So I think I think before we started this, we were really, you know, kids of the Northeast. And our lives were like, basically the world basically goes from Washington to Boston. That's pretty much the universe. And I think since we started five years ago, we've performed, I think, in 25 states now. And we've really just got to know a lot of people. And we always love to kind of go out and just talk to people. And I think... Um, Working with people and teaching people improv who have never played any improv, never done any comedy, and seeing the joy and the excitement that they feel, oh, I can really do this, has made me just think about what are all the things that we don't think we can do that maybe we can. 
I think when you see that spark in someone of like, oh, improv's not so hard. I could do that. You know, it makes me think, oh, maybe I could take up that, that instrument I've been thinking about or maybe I could be a lawyer. Well, not that far, but maybe I could do something, you know? Um, yeah. For me, I've just learned more about the Bible. Uh, our tradition teaches us that there are 70 faces to the Torah or the Hebrew Bible, meaning there every, any verse and you can interpret it 70 different ways. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to keep interpreting and keep, oh, maybe it could be this and maybe it could be that. And that's a reminder that we try to teach kids, like, how do you make this relevant for you today? How do you interpret this story? And it's fun to see them play with that. The, the joy of play is something yeah. lost nowadays. For, and adults experience it when they see their children experiencing it. But there's something beautiful about telling these biblical stories. And for Aaron and I, I think we were a little detached from our Judaism after high school and through college. And I think finding this avenue for us of making it our own has been amazing. And I think what's beautiful about the Jewish tradition and many others is that we're having a conversation with our ancestors. That every time we write a new version of a story, we're having a conversation with the rabbis who wrote a version of the same story a thousand years ago. And being a part of that conversation makes you feel part of a continuum that goes beyond yourself. And whenever you feel part of something bigger than yourself, it makes you feel good. A conversation with Aaron Friedman and Andrew Davies, the Bible players in Crevecore, Missouri. The Bible players were in town as part of the St. Louis Storytelling Festival. You can find more about them at their website, www.thebibleplayers.com. I'm Sam Payne. And you're listening to The Appleseed, Tellers and Stories on BYU Radio. We loved talking with Aaron and Andrew about their work as the Bible players. And while there's a lot that delighted me about our chat, there's one part of the conversation that I keep coming back to in my mind. It's that part of the conversation right at the end. In fact, this part. We're having a conversation with our ancestors. And being a part of that conversation makes you feel part of a continuum that goes beyond yourself. And whenever you feel part of something bigger than yourself, it makes you feel good. Yeah, that part. We're having a conversation with our ancestors and being part of that conversation makes you feel part of a continuum that goes beyond yourself. And whenever you feel part of something bigger than yourself, it makes you feel good. I like that a lot. And I think it's worth taking Andrew and Aaron at their word. Be part of a conversation that's bigger than yourself by figuring out to what and to whom you are connected. Reverend Robert B. Jones takes part in that conversation when he talks about his blues heroes and plays their music on his own on that guitar made from the wood of one of Detroit's long-gone houses. I feel a little like I got to be part of a conversation bigger than myself when I called my grandma to get help making a Greek dinner. And Aaron and Andrew make themselves part of a conversation that's bigger than themselves when they make up fun new ways for today's kids to hear the ancient stories that have nurtured and taught their ancestors. So what will you do? Find an important object in your house and ask the person to whom it belongs to tell its story. Make some favorite family food and tell the story of how it came to be important to you. Find a new way to tell an old tale to bring it alive. I bet you can think of something. And remember, the stories you love become part of your story. Thanks to Reverend Robert B. Jones, Andrew Davies, and Aaron Friedman for being part of our show today. Find us online at byuradio.org Appleseed or download the BYU Radio app for great ways to enjoy all the programs produced by BYU Radio. The Appleseed is pleased and proud to be part of that family of programs. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Appleseed.